I don't like the idea of saying, hey, if you want to get around to reading Resurrection Walk, go back 32 years and start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind selling 38 books to somebody new. But at the same time, I think I'm more uh, accomplished at what I'm doing. And, and usually, you know, the current book is what I think I had to write to 37 before to learn how to do 38. I love doing these holler books. I think I'm more closely in my own world of thinking in terms of being a lawyer as opposed to being a cop or a detective. I mean, I never, never really considered going down that path, but I did consider going down the path of being a criminal defense attorney. I'm in a trap now where all of Mickey Haller's cases end up in a box. He has to be on a stage in a courtroom. He's guilty or not guilty, you know? So you gotta find ways of making the stories different. Welcome back to a brand new, they said it would never last, we've defied the critics season of bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jamieson. And I think this is season five by my reckoning, which is pretty good going. Well, you are the one to do the reckoning because you are the queen of the spreadsheet, right? So if <laughs> Which you is don't like know, the no most hilarious <laughs> thing ever to think of me as a queen of any spreadsheet because they uh, befuddle my mind often. Really? But yeah, they do. But I do like a bit of admin. I like to plan right. and I like to know what I'm doing. So until you said that, I just like I wasn't even being sarcastic. I genuinely thought you were all over these. I can't do them. And you were the one that always sent me a spreadsheet and it was always in working order. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm surprised. So they they get the better of you. Well, I can, of wills. <laughs> I can fill in the boxes, but if you ask me to do anything complicated, there's loads of really cool shortcuts and things I yeah. think you can do on uh, spreadsheets now, which I just have never really taken the time to understand. But yeah, the admin side is fine. Um, but we share everything else pretty much uh, in terms of editing and things. Yeah. So thank you to everybody who has listened up to this point. If you have been listening, we've said this before, but it'd be amazing if you could uh, rate, review and subscribe to our podcast because that just really helps with uh, discovery so other people can hear what we're up to and hopefully we can just spread that joy of reading something new. Talking of discovery, this is going to be an amazing segue. Uh, Our first guest is back with a Lincoln Lawyer book. See what I've done there? He has to turn over discovery to the state. Yeah, it's an American legal term, but you'll pick it up. And um, yeah, we're very excited. So we've actually, we should tell you, before we get stuck into it, one, we've done a few up front for this season. So we can tell you that in the next few weeks, you'll be hearing from Terry Hayes, a screenwriter and best-selling author of Iron Pilgrim, back with, it's not really a follow-up because it's a standalone story, but um, The Day of the Locust took him the best part of 10 years to complete. I so think it's actually called The Year of the Locust, so even That's longer. Long it took. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and um, uh, Daniel Miller uh, will talk to us as well. It is somebody that you discovered, right? Well, I think other people have discovered Daniel's work, but yeah, I came For across us. her For work. Us. For us, for us, yeah. yeah. She's a storyteller extraordinaire and has written a beautiful book about trying to get everybody to have the confidence in your own 
make-believe worlds and storytelling. So if you're telling stories to your kids or grandkids, or if it's just something you want to use in your work life. Um, yeah, really fascinating chat that one. So that's coming up too. And also mm. we will be doing our books of the year oh, yeah. coming up before Christmas. So if you're in the market for some book recommendations, if you're looking to gift a book to somebody, then Phil and I will take you through what we've been reading and loving in 2023. Can you remember the last time we did a Books of the Year? Was there much crossover? Did we manage to come up with five different ones each? I can't remember. I think there was one crossover. Yeah, I think there was maybe one crossover. I'm trying to remember what it was. If only there was a way that these were in more, you know, <laughs> immortalized so that we could go back yeah. and find that. Maybe we'll do that before we record the Books of the Year this time. What a great idea. Listen back, doing research, doing homework, making it polished and professional. That's an excellent idea. Let's hope that catches on. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, we'll work on it for series five of bestsellers. But for now, enough of us. And let's just get straight into Michael Connolly, who is back with another incredible book. And here is Phil to tell you all about it to begin with. We are delighted to welcome back to bestsellers our very first guest ever when we first launched this off. Since then... He's written a few more books. This is book 38 we are about to discuss. It's the new primarily Lincoln lawyer with a bit of Harry Bosch thrown in for good measure. It's Resurrection Walk. And so far to date, Michael Connolly has shifted. Take a deep breath and try and imagine all these books piled up at Wembley Stadium. 85 million books. It's wow. a great pleasure to welcome you back. How are you, sir? You're well. Um, uh, yeah, I'm doing very well. I can't is that believe it. Wembley Stadium holds 85 so, so Wembley Stadium holds about 90,000, yeah. Wow, yeah. Cool. So, I mean, this is, that's quite a lot of Wembleys you've got there. <laughs> you could do more nights than Taylor Swift and we still wouldn't have enough space for your books. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. She's uh, <laughs> on top of the heap. <laughs> I can't believe it's nearly a year since I last saw you. That was the event that we did together in, in London. So since then, you've given us two new books, right? Um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't been back to England, but, uh, I, I always like going there. So Resurrection Walk, let, let's set this up then. It is, I said in the intro, it's primarily a Mickey Haller story, right? But Harry's very much there, right with him, helping him out on this. And I felt when I started this, it almost picked up immediately from the last Bosch book. Is that fair? Yeah, there was definitely a case planted in the last Bosch book that um, uh, actually in the book, in the last book, Desert Star, um, they tip Mickey Haller to this case. And that's kind of taken care of in the first chapter. And then we go from there. I feel like you're such a skilled series writer at this point, because I... Uh, admittedly, sadly, had not got around to reading the latest Bosch one yet, but it didn't, it still worked absolutely for me. So how do you still play off that balance between people who may not have read the entire series before they come to each book and it's, they all kind of still work as standalones. That's presumably an important thing. Yeah. I mean, it's early on. Um, one of my editors, um, I think it was Jane Wood um, at Orion said that, the problem with series, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff, like the the continuing digging into character is fantastic from the writer's point of view and and readers who are carrying along with you. But I remember she said, uh, people don't like to jump on a moving train. 
And that's kind of like what a series is. So it's always front of mind for me to write a story that um, you could just jump in with. You know, and the second part of that is that, you know, we all get better at what we do the more we do it. So I don't like the idea of saying, hey, if you want to get around to reading Resurrection Walk, go back 32 years and start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind selling 38 books to somebody new. But at the same time, I think I'm more uh, accomplished at what I'm doing. And and usually, you know, the current book is what I think I had to write to 37 before to learn how to do 38. I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. But. No, it does. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I have wondered that as well about, you know, people like yourself who have written so many books in a series that, yeah, you you must be such a, in many ways, similar, but also a very different writer from that person who wrote the very first one. Yeah, I mean, the uh, like what Phil said, that this is, uh, the seeds of this book are planted in the last book, but you don't have to read that last book. It, it gets covered in the very first chapter. So it, it, it to me, it's a standalone, but it is part of a series. So I'm going to read a sentence from page five because there's no spoiler in this, but I think this absolutely crystallizes the whole sentiment behind this latest novel, Michael. Uh, and it's it's Mickey Haller in, in first person. Uh, in that moment, I suddenly didn't care about any of that. I felt the hollow I had carried inside for a long time start to close. I had resurrected this man from the dead. And with that came a fulfillment I had never known in the practice of law or in life. So was that a purposeful decision that for this novel, Mickey, to me, and you know I'm a huge fan, feels much less of um, a slick kind of game player that actually he's discovered his own conscience? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, now i got to find another section to read, by the way. <laughs> oh, no, was that my read? Sorry, dude. No, it's okay. The... Uh, but yeah, I mean, that is a key point of the book. And, you know, when you, it, it seems like we're talking about series a lot here, but when you do a series, you gotta, you gotta pivot. You got, it can't be the same old slick uh, Lincoln lawyer, every book, you have to have stories that pivot the character in, in a new direction. And I think this book does that. And that's going to allow me to sustain the character that I can come back to him in some new way. Next time um, I get the, uh, the Lincoln lawyer Jones and I want to write about Mickey Haller. Um, so yeah, this book is about him kind of finding a new path, finding a conscious, finding out what is really important to him at this point. And it feels like you've done that with Harry as well. So Harry's now kind of working alongside Mickey and he's driving and investigating for him in, in this book. And again, I'm kind of thinking maybe even like six books ago, you'd never have had Harry Bosch working for a defense team. Would you? <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, there's pivots all around. There's enough pivots for everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, and he's grudging about it now, but, you know, what he gets infected by is the idea if, if the justice system got this wrong and the wrong person is in a cell in a prison, that means somebody got away with this. And that that gets under Harry Bosch's skin. That's that's a motivating force for him and all all his stories. And so it's a way of getting him over that obstacle of working for the quote unquote dark side. And how do you settle on which one to write next in that, you've, you know, you've seen something, you've heard something, something's come to you that you want to tell that Lincoln lawyer story, but you've already got three other things kind of on the go. How do you order it yourself to keep yourself interested in the game? It's all instinct. You kind of have a feeling of what to do next. Um, 
you know, you 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 said it's classified as a Lincoln Lawyer novel. Well, that's what I told my publishers. I'm writing a Lincoln Lawyer novel. And then Harry kind of pushed his way in because I kind of, you know, there's more Harry Bosch be behind me than in front of me because he ages in real time and so forth. So I just didn't want to spend a year away from him. So that's when, you know, I had the idea for what I wanted this book to be about. And then I brought in Harry Bosch and, I, you know, it might have been a surprise when I turned the book in. Uh, because the whole, the whole marketing had already gone down the path of Lincoln lawyer novel and so forth. And he is definitely um, on the page the majority of the time, but, but Harry is, you know, very significant to this, but, you know, um, getting back, I, I think I um, very skillfully didn't answer your question. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, how do I do this? I mean, how, how do I decide what's what and something just, it, it, it will, pierce all the armor and get through to you and say this is what I want to write about next and it's funny whatever it was I think 20 years ago the whole Lincoln lawyer odyssey started when a lawyer who had been my roommate and someone I have talked about him said uh who's a criminal defense attorney said there's no client as scary as an innocent man and I thought that was so intriguing and that became the first line of the first Lincoln lawyer book that same lawyer was talking to me about um, habeas cases. And what's interesting about habeas cases is they're, they're, these are cases where someone's already been convicted, they're in prison, and they might be innocent. And the attorney asked for a habeas hearing. Uh, it's really habeas corpus, show me the body. In other words, they're going to show you evidence that this person should not be in prison. And you know, the basis of the American justice system and justice systems all around the world is that you're innocent till proven guilty. But in the habeas case, that's flipped. And this attorney said, your client is guilty till proven innocent. And I just love that idea that it flips, you know, the basic rule of our justice system upside down. And so that was the starting point for this. And when when he talked, said that phrase to me, you're you're uh, guilty till proven innocent. I said, okay, that's going to be the next Lincoln lawyer book. And was the the case? We'll talk a little bit about that case in this, in a moment, just to set it up without spoiling the new book, Mike. But was it based on an actual case? Because you mentioned the, is the Innocence Project, isn't it? Gets mentioned here, and that's a real thing. Yeah, no, um, the case per se is not is made up, um, but. The, the strings around it, the, the idea that um, like the the sheriff of L.A. County went to prison for corruption, that all happened. And this uh, idea of gangs within the sheriff's department, within law enforcement, that is a big problem that happens in L.A. County. That's been happening for a while and that is written about in the media quite a bit in the last 10, 15 years. And it's a problem that um, keeps cropping up, and and I and I'm very much interested in that. And so I I said I want to come up with a storyline that will take me past through that through that controversy. Is that ever risky? Have you ever faced threats from LAPD? I mean, even now or in your previous life as a as the LAPD guy at the LA Times? No, I haven't. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm under the umbrella of fiction. Um, I think people who are local and read these books probably nod their head and say, oh, yeah, that's that's coming from real life here. And that's, you know, I don't write for people that know about this, but it's it's what keeps me 
intrigued and plugged in for the you know the 10 or so months it takes me to write a write a story so shall we set it up and hear a little bit before we because i've got some things to read out as well and i don't want to blow <laughs> the next bit that you're planning to read as well so you want me to read a few paragraphs yeah okay the um i think this is not what phil just read even but if it is your voice close. is it's way a, better yeah it's about the theme you know so um the setup is that um Mickey's standing outside of prison waiting for someone to be released because he's he's uh, proven him innocent. And that's what the resurrection walk is, is when you walk out uh, of prison. This was a rare moment. Corcoran State wasn't a prison where men often left on their own two feet. It was an LWAP facility, meaning for men serving life without parole. You checked in, but you never checked out. This was where Charles Manson died of old age. But many inmates didn't make it to old age. Homicides in the cells were common. Jorge Ochoa was just two steel doors down from an inmate who had been beheaded in his cell a few years back. His avowed Satanist cellmate had strung together his ears and fingers to make a necklace. That was Corcoran State. By the way, that's a true story. But somehow Jorge Ochoa I survived 14 years here for a murder he did not commit. And now this was his day. His life sentence had been vacated after a court finding of actual innocence. He was rising up, coming back to the land of the living. We had driven up from Los Angeles in my Lincoln, two media vans trailing us to be at the gate to welcome him. Okay, so you know what we're going to ask straight away, right? <laughs> <laughs> So that true story, like, because I read that and I was like, whoa, that is like so violent, such yeah. a heinous thing that's happened. So you read about that, did you? Yeah, I just did some um, <clears throat> uh, research, I guess you'd say, um, just internet research on um, violence at Corcoran State, which is about two and a half hours from LA and is, is you know, really one of the prison where they send the worst people and I came across that story and this is where books fall short you know the mugshot of the guy who beheaded his cellmate was there and the the guy's scary with tattooed devil horns and things like that on his face and forehead and things like that and and it was like well this is a a pretty bad case and uh you know, so I, I, you know, it's pretty violent. I think that's the page three. It's like, you got to wonder, should you start a book with that story? But I wanted to underline what the innocent guy had to go through 14 years of being in that place. And uh, so I, I was just trying to amp up how powerful it is a moment when, when Mickey and his family and the media are standing outside the gate waiting for him to come out. So Mickey, in this... Um... After that, at the beginning, you kind of Harry's found another case for him. And Harry's job is to kind of go through these letters that people write to the Lincoln Law. And he's picked one out. And it's a woman who's inside, accused of murdering her husband. Husband works at the sheriff's office. And that relates to some of what you talked about previously with the gangs within LAPD and what have you. And kind of more than that, I probably don't want to say because you don't need to know more than that to come to this story. You don't even need to know that really. But that at least you know what we're talking about now with, with Michael. And um we Again, I'm going to dance around this to avoid spoilers. We meet a forensic expert that's called to, to give evidence to support the release of this woman. 
Dr. Arslanian. And there's a really, for me, the highlight of this book, Mike, the, the dialogue that she has with Harry Bosch when they're in the car driving to a location where she's really being intrusive for Harry and, and Mickey's parentage, because we already know they're half-brothers. We know that now. And um, uh, there's a bit of detail where she says, uh, Mickey told me you two are brothers, half-brothers, actually. Ah, oh, which was the common parent? Father. But you two didn't know about each other until you were grown up? Yeah, our father was a lawyer like Mickey. Mickey's mother was his wife. My mother was a client. I think I see why you were kept apart. Was it consensual, your mother and father? It was a surprising question. Bosch didn't answer at first. And I'm like, I'm really locked into that. And it's, it's why have you chosen this book to give us that bit of detail and backstory? Do you know? <laughs> why did I choose this book? I don't know. I mean, you you want to be reviewing of your characters all the time. And, I, you know, I don't outline my books. I just write them. So in the moment, I thought that would... You know, she, she's kind of a busybody in a way that you like her. I at least yeah. I do. I really liked her. Yeah, and, me too. Yeah, and and she's been in prior books, and uh, she's actually in. There's a character on the Netflix show in the new season that just came out a couple months ago, and I, so it's a character I like coming back to. But she has a, and it's part of being a scientist and so forth. She has a very inquisitive mind that's not just relegated to scientific study it's it's human study and so she she's working for basically working for mickey but she's with these two guys that are got to be very curious to her you know what their relationship is how did it come about and so forth so i think to her it was a natural question uh to bosh you know so much of his life has been pushed down in his subconscious of, of what his motivations are and so forth I thought it'd be interesting to have him ask the question he doesn't really know the answer to. Yeah. And also I kind of, having read a few Boshes, you kind of feel that anyone else asking that they might've gotten knocked out. Do you know what I mean? There's something about her that she can, <laughs> she can get away with it. Yeah. And I hope it comes across that he's intrigued by her. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think he's uh, probably in an age that romance has passed him by, but, but he's intrigued by this woman because like me, like everybody, male, female, gender doesn't matter. If someone's good at what they do, they're really interesting people. And and so he, he knows she's good at what she's doing. He just was part of uh, a recreation of a crime scene she was working on. And to me, it's funny, it's funny you said that was a highlight. For me, I love that chapter. It starts with him face down on the, in the dirt, and you're wondering, what's going on here? <laughs> but it's her. It's, it's, she's, he, she, he's following orders from her on this recreation. Yeah, I think you've written as old as he was. He still hesitated to pull the trigger on matters of the heart. Yeah. Do you think we'll explore that more in the next Bosch? Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to write till I actually write it. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope Harry, you know, he's a searcher. I guess he's been he's been in stories for 19 since 1992 going on 32 years still hasn't really found what he's looking for hasn't found home I guess you'd say and so maybe that could happen so when you're writing those passages and you know I'm aware it's it's all you you're writing it Mike but does it still surprise you when those backstory moments pop into your head and you're like huh okay you know kind of didn't see that one coming but all of a sudden it's there does that happen yeah i think that's pretty much exactly the huh 
that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and, and and that means it's not there. It's not written in concrete yet. It's in there, and I do a lot of rewriting, and I always know that when I come back to something I wrote that might be controversial or might be icky or might be whatever, I'm going to come back around in, in a few months and I'll, I almost, it'll almost be like, I don't expect it. So I'll, I'll come across it as a reader will, and I'll get a final feeling like, yeah, that belongs or nah, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that now type of feeling. So does that mean, because I know you often have, various projects on the go do you get to do that writerly thing of putting a book away for a period of time so you then can come back more with fresh eyes to edit it yeah fresh eyes are really important to me it's not a, a question of time though it's 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 a creative break so I'm lucky that I'm involved in some tv shows and so between drafts I can just spend a week in the Harry Bosch writing room or the Lincoln lawyer writing room and it clears my mind of, of the book. So I can come back to it pretty quickly with a fresh take or a fresh mind uh, simply because I got my creative being or whatever you want to call it, got hijacked by this other project for even a short amount of time. Does the, do the timelines never get confusing though? If you've got three projects, let's say you've got a novel and two TV shows at the same time. And, you know, the TV shows usually pick one or two of your back novels, don't they, as, as the source material. Does your brain ever get confused as to which timeline you're on with where, say, Maddie is or where Maggie McPherce is, you know, some of the tertiary characters? Not in the Lincoln Lawyer stuff because um, <clears throat> they're kind of similar in ages, but the Bosch stuff, you got you have to be vigilant because Bosch is – 10 or 15 years older than the guy in the show. And uh, so I often have to think, wait a minute, was that, am I following up on something that's in the show or is it in my books? Um, a, a point of order was, and not in this book, but in a previous book, I had Maggie, a uh, Maddie, I'm sorry, Maddie as a police officer. And then I realized, oh, she's not a police officer yet in the book. She is in the show. And so I had to kind of finesse that um, because I thought that was a great idea, but that is, that's a real example of how the show influences the books. So it's definitely become a two-way street. And uh, yeah, so, so sometimes that gets confusing. Luckily I have a whole, you know, my copy editor, I've had the same copy editor for like 20 years and um, I'd never seen it because she's in Boston and I'm in either in LA or Florida, but um I think she has a Bible, so she tracks stuff. And and I haven't written a book yet, but she hasn't said, yeah, that hasn't happened yet, but it happened in the show or, you know, that kind of thing. That's cool. Um, do you mind just telling us a bit about how the Lincoln Lawyer series came to be at Netflix? Because I know when we spoke to you for this podcast a while ago now, it had all just kind of fallen through kind of pre-pandemic and it was all um, up in the air. So what? Yeah. how did it kind of come back to life? Well, what was interesting is like 15 years ago, the first book came out and um, it was in Hollywood, they would call it a high concept idea that here's this lawyer who works out of his car, not because he's a bad lawyer, but because he's a good lawyer. And this is a way to do it in this auto tropolis called Los Angeles. And uh, so it was the only book I've ever had where there was an actual bidding war for it in Hollywood. 
And, you know, and I went down the track with a company called Lakeshore because a guy who um, ran Lakeshore, owned Lakeshore, had been a former trial attorney. And he impressed me with him saying, like, I did, I've been in those places. I've been in those courtrooms and you got it right. And if you let me make the movie, I'll get it right. And so I, I actually took less money to go with him. And, and from that came the Matthew McConaughey movie. But a week after I had made the deal with uh, Lakeshore, I get a call from David Kelly, who's like the premier TV writer of our time. And uh, he goes, I think there's a really good show in Lincoln Lawyer. And I go, I wish you'd call me a week ago because I might have changed <laughs> my path. But but I missed out on that. And so many years go by and um, CBS, which is a big network here in the States, um, went to Kelly and said, we want a, a lawyer show you know, what do you got? And so his, his people circled back to me 10 to 12 years after that conversation, actually more, I guess, you know, well, 10 or 12, whatever. And, um, and they said, are the TV rights to Lincoln lawyer available? And, and I said, yeah, they happen to be, so we could do this. And so it took a while, but David Kelly and I um, went into business together and he wrote a script for CBS and then we were supposed to film, I think the uh, COVID lockdown was March 9th. We were supposed to start, you know, we were geared up. We had an actor, we had all these things, we had scripts and we were geared up to make the show for CBS at, uh, I think our starting filming day was March 23rd, two weeks. But then mm -hmm. the, when the closure happened, uh, the lockdown happened, a lot of stuff got canceled and CBS canceled the show. They killed the show before we even started but you know we had it back we had a david kelly script for the first episode and so uh some other places came calling and we made the deal with netflix and uh what was interesting about the switch to netflix is the people there were pretty well versed in the books and they said in the books you don't really lean into it but he's mexican-american and you know, you, everyone thinks of Matthew McConaughey, but we, I think we got to change this up. So uh, we're not like the poor man's Matthew McConaughey. We have to, we want to be loyal to the book. We want to find a Mexican American actor who can carry the show. And uh, I thought that was a, a, just a brilliant move. And I, and that, and we have Manuel, you know, we have, uh, I think he's fantastic. And, uh, you know, so here we are with that show, two seasons of it. And we're writing a third now. That's good. So we should probably just get the update on the telly from you. So there's a third season that you're writing of Lincoln Lawyer and Bosch Legacy, where's that at? Uh, there's a third season of that. Everything was delayed. We had this big strike out here that yeah. lasted five months. and uh, it's still not solved, is it, as we speak? Haven't they not The rejected? writer's strike is solved, but the actor's strike isn't. Yeah, the actors are still out and there's indications that might be coming to an end, which is good. And... Uh, so, yeah, we have writing rooms on both those shows. Season three is going. And uh, as soon as the actor strikes over, we'll schedule. Like, for example, um, the holiday, we have a holiday out here called Thanksgiving, which is in two weeks, I think. If the actor's strike can be finished before Thanksgiving, we'll start filming these shows in January. And, and we won't miss a beat in terms of them coming out on their normal cycles. Towards the end of this year. Amazing. That's cool. Yeah. That is got cool. the Matthew McConaughey Lincoln Lawyer film, by the way, is my mum's favorite film. So she's watched it many, many, many times. <laughs> it's kind of like her happy place to go to. 
Well, I think <clears throat> often you lose this when you're in a book to film transition, but there's, there's, uh, you know, what I go, I'm a former journalist, so I, I try to be as authentic as I can be. And that movie starts in the first five minutes where he comes into a courthouse, goes through a metal detector, people know him, everything's shorthand. It has the gritty reality absolutely correct. They actually filmed it in a courthouse where I used to cover trials as a reporter. And it was like so on the money, on the nose. And uh, so I, I just think that movie starts out and you, you're you nodding like, okay, this is like going to be a realistic story. Are there any other of your books that are in development for movies from some of the other characters? Um, yeah, nothing is sure in Hollywood, but um, Ballard, there's a writing room for Ballard. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. We hope it will, but um, there's uh, that's for Amazon that we're hoping to have a companion show to Bosch Legacy with Ballard. And then I, the, my reporter series, the Jack McAvoy series, the uh, last one was a few years ago. It was called Fair Warning. And... Uh, I actually wrote a script for that and uh, we're tweaking the script and hopefully something will happen with that. That's a movie project. That would be cool. I really hope it happens because I kind of, it's funny, I've been watching quite a lot of films like um, The Lincoln Lawyer, but also some of the Grisham things from a while back as well. And those kind of legal thrillers uh, of like the 90s, it was such a a good moment to have on screen I kind of I feel like we miss those those kind of like mid-budget films still that just tell a really good story um so I hope that Jack McAvoy gets to do his thing on screen yeah that'd be cool Mike tell me this you sound like you're at the busiest you've ever been in your career is is that true and how do you feel about that and then you told us about the tv stuff so what's the next book you're going with um I'll just do the next book real quick okay um I'm going to start, I always start the Monday after Thanksgiving, which is usually the first Monday in December. So I'm going to start writing a Ballard book. Uh, and and I have the idea somewhat based on a true crime that I wrote about many years ago in uh, when I was a reporter. And it was about a serial rapist, but he didn't get caught till like a couple of years ago. And the way he got caught, which I'm not going to give away here, was really interesting. So I, I think that's what I'm going to pursue on the next book. Um, it, it appears that I'm busier than I really am, you know, cause there's like two TV shows. I'm an executive producer, but I'm kind of like an elder statesman or the mayor of a small town or something. And so I kind of dip in and dip out when, when I want to. And, uh, you know, I'm always holding out that, you know, I'm a book writer first and foremost, and I have to protect that in my cycle of how I write and so forth. And uh, yeah, so um, maybe I'm as bu as busy as I've ever been in my life. But at the same time, I I uh, you know I'm here at home, and when we're done talking, I'll uh, I'll go back to writing. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm tweet as I said before. I'm tweaking a fair warning script, but you know. Uh, you know, water seeks its own level. I'm busy, but not that I can't handle it. I'm, I'm a pretty happy place. But is it tricky being the mayor when actually what you really are is the parent of all these amazing characters? I mean, is it like you're letting a load of strangers look after your kids too long? Yeah, I mean, but you, you, if you're a good mayor, you surround yourself with people you trust and they, they can take over the tasks. 
and it's funny no one wants to displease the mayor it's very political so you know so when i show up you know there's there's a lot of deference and so forth it's totally undeserved but but you know no one wants me to go like that oh man harry bosch would never say that you know or you know which i in probably in 10 years of making this show i've said it three times at the most because i surrounded i'm lucky i surrounded myself with people who revere the books, respect the books, and want to capture the characters and essence of the books. And, you know, as opposed to, and this happens a lot in Hollywood, I've just been lucky that I've avoided it. There's people say, oh, I can tell this story better. You know, and they want to go off what they've been given. They don't want to go off the written page um, and, and go their own way. And I just have not had to deal with people like that on these shows. Just on journalism briefly, um because I really enjoyed Fair Warning. And I like that you bring in a reporter, um, like the, the the usefulness of good reporters is a thread that's run through your books. And Phil and I are both journalists and, it, and the kind of the decimation and desecration, if you like, of journalism generally fills me with terror. So has that kind of fueled why you want to go back to Fair Warning and Jack McAvoy and and get that on screen. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the you know, the system that, or the industry is collapsing day by day. And the more we get away from good, solid reporting, the more, um, you know, it's a field day for corruption. You know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the fewer watchdogs you have, the more people are going to get away with stuff. So, you know, that's what we're losing. And, um, you know, what I, what can I do about it? I'm a fiction writer. Well, I can write about the value of relentless, you know, uh, journalism um, of, you know, all, whether you're writing about a homicide cop, a defense lawyer, or a, a, a reporter, news reporter, these stories have something in common and it's about someone being relentless in trying to uncover a hidden truth. And that's, that's a real hook for readers, but it's also, it's something, it says something about society. And, you know, so, you know, I just keep my head down, write about this guy, Jack McAvoy, who's, you know, a cynic, he's pretty cynical as most reporters are, um, but he's also a hopeful guy. You know, and he's hoping for the best in an industry that is crumbling, no doubt about it. And, you know, where do we go when it's gone? I don't know. It's not going to be a pretty picture at all. Um, let me take you back to because we're talking to you in, in L.A. right now. Um, again, I'm not going to give any context to a bit of um, a bit of speech from the book, from the new book, Mike. Not so much. It's L.A., you know, there's probably a history of violence wherever you go. That's sad. That's L.A. Now, obviously, you've been there and you've lived there and you've covered it. And I I want to put to you that as one of your readers, L.A. feels to you like you can criticize it because you love it. But if I said to you, I hate L.A., that you might defend it. Do you know what I mean by that? It's almost like family. It's almost like a key character in all of your books, whether it's a Bosch or a Lincoln lawyer. How has your relationship changed with Los Angeles over the last 30 years? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I came as a reporter, um, and that's the, as you guys know, as journalists, that there's a weird irony in that, that, you know, the worst stories for the community are the best stories to write about, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I came during a time where the murder rates were the 
highest ever in this city. You know, the the divide along uh, economic and racial lines were the widest, leading to riots and things like that. Um, so when I came to L.A., it was definitely a look over your shoulder town because because anything could happen. And then things kind of geared towards getting better and better and better. And now it's swinging back the other way. There's a lot of it's becoming a look over your shoulder town. I know I do that. And maybe it's because I have more to lose now. I don't really know. But I look in the mirror to see if I'm being followed because there's a lot of what they call follow home robberies here. And I'm not driving a real flashy car or anything, um, but at the same time, it becomes a habit. And and uh, you know, so the the haves and have nots. There was a big gulf between them, a widening gulf between them, and on all kinds of le levels, like I'm saying, racial, economic, social. And then it got closer, it got started getting closer and closer. And now it's spreading apart again. And, you know, I don't know what's the cause of that. I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist or anything like that. I just know you feel it and you try to get it in the books. But um, I remember I wrote in my second book, a couple page kind of treatise on LA and it was very much set in uh, that book came out in 93 a, a year after the riots and so it was a picture of LA that was not good but it was somewhat romantic because it was through the eyes of Harry Bosch and then I didn't think that that description of LA was that accurate um in the years following but now it's getting accurate again it's interesting because I think it's been a while since I've been in Los Angeles but living in London, uh, where you walk a lot, you kind of do get a sense. If you veer off a street, you don't know. You're like, yeah, I'm not going to walk down that street. I'm going to walk down something else. But obviously in Los Angeles, everyone's in their car. So I guess it's the same sense you get. If you turn off a street, are you like, yeah, I shouldn't be on that street. I'm going to double back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's, it's randomness. When crime is very random, it's scary. And there's a randomness in L.A., that's happening now just to talk about a couple of nicer things in los angeles that uh came up in this book resurrection walk that made me very hungry mike while i was reading it there are some delicious lunchtime eateries that are mentioned but also you mention uh quite a lot musso and frank's grill which i've been to once a long long time ago but uh you also mention the private wine room in that restaurant, is that something you frequented? I've looked it up online. It looks amazing. Yeah, um, I've had a meeting of writers in there. Um, oh, so the Gloria, dream. <laughs> Musso and Frank's is uh, over a hundred years old. In in London, that's probably that's like oh, this is a new restaurant. But in, uh, <laughs> in, in LA, it's a lot. <laughs> In LA, there's very few places that can say they're a century old. I mean, very few. And uh, they actually own the whole block. The restaurant's in the center of this block and there's other businesses. But during COVID, a lot of businesses closed, um, went out of business. And so they pushed into an empty store uh, that was next door because they because they owned the structure. And so they they kind of built these private rooms that they didn't have for the first hundred years. And they're very nice. And 
And, you know, one is the exact same size as a writing room, um, you know, a TV writing room, which is usually a oval table with eight to 10 chairs around it. So um, the people in Musso and Franks have been so good to us. We film in there all the time and they never charge us. You know, they know that when this is on a TV show, people are intrigued by it. But still, in L.A., where most places, when you go in and say, uh, we want, we'd love to film in your place, and they'd say, well, that's $15,000 a day or something like that. And to have uh, kind of the lone business go out and say, like, this is like a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, because cause we'll be on display in your show, and it's like a commercial for our business. So, yeah, you're welcome here. They're closed on Mondays, and it says, as long as you film on Mondays, you're, we're, we're cool. So they they must have been Mike Connolly fans then, surely, to waive the fee. They must have known of your books. Um, yeah, they do. I know the there's a third generation owner. Um, the whole the same family's owned it for a hundred years and hundred and three years now. I think, uh, yeah, nineteen nineteen. I think is when it opened. One hundred and four years. Um, and Mark is is very good to us and um. Whenever I go in there just personally to eat and so forth, they take great care of me and it's it's a fun place to be. Natalie only brought it up because she's planning a trip to LA soon. And I think she thinks if yeah. she mentions it in the podcast, she'll get similar treatment, Michael. You know? I'm not I'm not supposed <laughs> to go to LA, but um I obviously have looked up the menu and everything because it's been a while since I've been there. Because I always love like the Hollywood uh history of that place. And you know, it's kind of it feels like it's as you say, in quite a new town it feels like it's really dripping with spirits of the past which is kind of cool for la yeah they um they put out a hundred year like coffee table book that's very cool for the history of who's been in there who is regulars you know you know raymond chandler johnny depp all the all these amazing stories the rolling stones go in there all the time the rolling stones used to take one of the um longtime waiters on their tour sometimes um yeah because he's just a funny joke teller i mean he passed recently but he was there for uh many decades and his son's there now but um yeah, yeah it's just it's just a, a place that is very unique to la and and makes you love la just because of this one restaurant okay so the next time we do then collectively all happen to be in los angeles we obviously have to meet in the private wine reef miss <laughs> <Mr>. and frank's <laughs> Yeah, we can meet there. Or there's a booth they call the Raymond Chandler booth where he always sat. And it has this great view of both the restaurant and the bar. And the bar is a scene. It's a it's a it's just a cool scene. I think there's like 12 stools. They're, they're nailed to the floor so people can't move chairs around. It's like it's very traditional and um, and it's a cool place. Right, that's the ambition. The ambition is we'll record the next <laughs> one with you. you know, we'll come to you okay. and we'll yeah. record it with you. Yeah. I did want to as ask you. As long as it's on Monday, you got to do it. Yeah, yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you because this is a hauler book about um, the level of, you know, we've spoken before about the people who help you with the Bosch stories and the former detectives and what have you, but is it trickier with a law book because you have to get the law right? With a with a cop story, one cop might do it a different way to another cop, and there's a bit of room, a wriggle room, I would imagine, for you. But with this, with things that have to be in discovery, things that have to be presented in a certain way, the court, then the judge in this has to respond in certain ways that are legal, down the line, black and white, right or wrong law issues. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, the Lincoln Lawyer books take more time 
Um, now there is a subjective level to legal work, but the the laws are set, procedures are set. Um, you know, but I probably haven't written a Lincoln lawyer book yet that I don't get some feedback online from lawyers saying that wouldn't work or I'd never do it that way. I I'd instead do this. So there are ways of being unique as an attorney in the system. And I try to get some of that, you know, with with Mickey Haller. But these books are so well or, or so researched that even when I get that email and says and someone says that wouldn't work, I usually can respond and say, actually, it did work. And here's where I got it. And, it, you know, I don't make up a lot of the stuff um, as far as uh, Mickey Haller's um, legal maneuvers. They're, they're usually based on anecdotal stories that I've been told. I think that speaks volumes about you that you are prepared to respond to those. Yeah, I mean, people tell me don't respond, but, yeah, yeah. but you know, it gets to me when they say, ah, that never happened. Like, I can tell you're not a lawyer. And it's like, hey, you're right. I'm not a lawyer, but I have these three lawyers and this was what case they did. And here's a sighting of it. And here's a newspaper story, a link to a newspaper story. It, it, it actually happened and it did work, that kind of thing. I also wonder about some of the the new the characters that you discover more about in each of the books. So, I mean, there were so many in this, like I really enjoyed Judge Quelo. Uh, she really stood out for me and um, her assistant as well. And I don't know how many of those have woven their way through earlier books or if there are new characters you're discovering that you want to now spend a bit more time with. Yeah, no, I try to make a lot of the ancillary characters new it keeps me interested in these things um the thing about i love doing these holler books i think i'm more closely in my own world of thinking in terms of being a lawyer as opposed to being a cop or a detective i mean i never never really considered going down that path but i did consider going down the path of being a criminal defense attorney but um there's a trap to these books and maybe this is why John Grisham doesn't do a lot of series. I know his latest book is a sequel to the firm, but for the most part, his books are standalone because I'm in a trap now where all of Mickey Haller's cases end up in a box. He has to be on a stage in the courtroom and then things are similar. He's guilty or not guilty, you know? So, so you got to find ways of making the stories different and what I liked about this book is, yeah, it ends up he's in a, he's in the box, he's in the, on the stage, he's in the courtroom, but it's not a trial where there's a jury, um, and it has that flip thing where his client's already guilty and he has to prove um, innocence. And so it, it was enough of a change. It's also in federal court as opposed to state court, so there's enough of a change there to keep I me interested and and we Phil and I have talked about this what I, what's happening to me in the writing process I'm pretty sure it happens to in the reading process so if I am enamored with this new way of getting into that box and changing that box a little bit if I have momentum when I'm writing I think there's gonna there's gonna be momentum and a feeling of change in in with the readers and just to kind of circle back then, because you write uh, with Mickey in the first person, uh, I disconnected and tried to compose myself, channeling the ghost of legal seagull, breathe it in. This is your moment. This is your stage. Want it, own it, take it. 
I got up off the bench and re-entered the courtroom. And I kind of really liked the, I was doing those like positive affirmations. And that was a side I don't think I've seen that much before of the Lincoln lawyer, because he seems to have so much swagger about him that here's his vulnerability that he really has to put himself through it. Yeah, I mean, that just comes from one of the attorneys that I deal with. You know, it's it's funny. It's like I do research with them, but a lot of it has nothing to do with the law. It's more about how do you do this, you know, how how do you get up ready to fight every day? And uh, so that was, that was something a lawyer told me, like kind of this mantra that they go through the to kind of put on their armor and go into the box, um, the cage fight. <laughs> The, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, what's really good for me or easy for me is that I've already told you guys, this is a pivot book, but then your follow-up question should be a pivot to what? And I don't know that answer. So all <laughs> I say, things are changing in this book. They're changing. And by the end of the book, you know, if we see Mickey Haller again, it's going to be under different circumstances and maybe there'll no longer be a box. I don't really know yet. Um, but this is the kind of book, this is the easy one. The next one's going to be harder because I do have to re kind of reset everything with him. But equally, um, I didn't ask you what, what follows the pivot because I think there's too many options for you. There's loads of options, I mean, especially with yeah. the two of them together. And that excites me as a reader enormously. I mean, and I've said this to you before, but the thing that I love most about your work is that you've created this universe. I feel I'm in it. I don't feel I'm reading a book. I feel like I'm catching up with somebody I haven't spoke to for ages. And that's the, what an amazing trick to pull off. Well, I mean, that is a fantastic compliment that, you know, that's, it's obviously what I'm going for. I mean, I'm a writer because I'm a reader um, and the immersion of book, some books, not all books, but if you can get immersed into a world, um, it's, it's pretty amazing as a reader so it, the way you can pace your books yeah too is it's just so skilled like and i know that it's not easy but it's such a ride to read it that's what i love about reading your stories as well is that that thing where you're like yeah you know i'm tired i'll, I'll read another chapter and then I'm like but i'm on this train i have to keep going now <laughs> because it's so exciting well i remember elmer leonard famously said i don't write the parts people don't want to read and and, you know, that's, he's talking about momentum there and, uh, you know, just giving people just enough to know what's going on, to, to be immersed into the world, but to keep moving, always keep moving. Right. Let's get some recommendations from you. Uh, stuff that you've read can be anything fiction, nonfiction, other things that you've enjoyed this year. Um, the one I liked was um, called An Honest Man by Michael Correa. That's the last book I read, actually. Um, set up in Maine, uh, uh, you know, not that well-known of a writer. Um, I re read this nonfiction book. This is a whole story. It's called Mystery and Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe by uh, Mark DeWidziak. And Edgar Allan Poe is like great American iconic writer, still read. Yeah. Chilling. Yeah, almost 200 years later. 
but his death was a mystery and and there's many many theories about it and this book explores them and i got so into the book that a partner and i optioned the rights to the book and we're making i'm directing a documentary kind of based on the book and wow basically it looks at Edgar Allan Poe's death through the eyes of contemporary pathology, uh, DNA, all these, all these things, you know, and, and so I went to my friends at the cold case unit at the LAPD, presented, presented them with stuff that is known uh, and theories, you know, and then did an interview with them about whether this would be a case that they would carry or open a homicide file on. It's all re really interesting. And, you know, Poe is very, very important to me. You know, I wrote a book called The Poet where I use a lot of his poetry. Um, and so it's almost like I feel like I didn't know all this stuff. I knew his writing, you know, I didn't know his history. And then when I read the history, it's so intriguing and in many ways sad. You know, one of the contributing agents to his death is poverty. There were no protections of writers, like copyright protections. He'd write a an amazing poem like the raven you get paid one time for it. it would be published all over the country and possibly the world yeah in france and so forth he never got paid for it you know so he died in poverty and that was probably a big contributing factor to his death and when do we anyway, get to see that off on a, i'm going off on an offshoot here but i'm that's what i'm doing i did some interviews on uh filmed interviews on that last week and um that i'm pretty excited about and do we know where, where that's going to land? Is that a Netflix thing or something else? Or uh, I don't know where it is. Um, I like to do these things where, on my own. And uh, I reach a point of critical mass where I said, I know, okay, this is going to happen. You know, I'm, right now I'm in early stages. I've done, I don't know, maybe five, six interviews. Uh, at least four of the people were people interviewed extensively in the book, including the author. Um, and uh so I'm reaching a point where I feel like, yeah, I'm going to carry this through and, it, and it's going to become a film. And so I'll, I'll try to find a home for it pretty soon, probably after January, the start of the new year. So that book again, that it. book once, is called... Once a journalist, always a journalist. Yeah, it is exercising that um, that muscle again, uh, which I was doing with podcasts and so forth. And I've kind of slowed down a little bit on the podcast and got diverted into this uh, film. The book is called... A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Mark DeWizziak. And A Mystery of Mysteries is a line from one of his poems. And can we Amazing. also get, just because we are privileged to be able to chat to you, a jazz recommendation, because I love that there are so many playlists that fans have set up on various streaming sites. And I've been going through a massive Oscar Peterson trio phase. So what jazz can you gift, gift us? Um, well, they, they put out a, uh, I don't, I think, I guess it was undiscovered, but a John Coltrane album a couple of years ago called, um, Blue World. And I keep playing that over and over again. I really love it. But I also met this veteran LA, in fact, I was on his podcast, uh, a veteran LA saxophone player named Tom Scott, and he had a band called the LA Express. And so I, getting his stuff again. Um, I I listened to him way back when I was in college. And he was a guy who played saxophone, like on the Steely Dan records, almost all, all these like pretty, pretty well-known 
recordings that had, um, you know, obviously had saxophone on it. And there's a good chance if it was recorded in LA, he was a studio musician um, and still is today. Um, so anyway, I, he's my new old discovery that I'm going back in and listening to all of Tom Scott's stuff. Uh, listen, it's um, very good of you to give us an hour when you've got so many plates spinning. But you know what? The best thing to tell people is that you look really happy at the moment. You look like a man who's in charge of his domain. <laughs> in charge of his domain. I hope so. Yeah. I don't forget put out a book till I'm happy with it. So um, it becomes a happy day when I know people can now start reading it. Well, if it helps you to know, we were both very, very happy with it, Michael. Honestly, it's such a great yeah. book, and it's got your classic hallmark of crescendoing to this beautiful ending, and it's just like, you know. It's... That, is that a hallmark or a hallmark? Oh, see what she did there? Very <laughs> good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so quick. So, yeah, so congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. And, Thank um, you. Thanks for talking to us, and, you know, keep that bar sky high. We look forward to the next adventure. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the conversation. I'll press stop if I could find the bloody button. Oh, there it is. No. no. <laughs> uh... sure leave that part in. <laughs> <laughs>
but Bruce is it Bruce Greenwood is that who was starring in it um yeah but really really dark but a lot of sort of familial sibling tensions family dramas it's very universal the, the things that he writes about but in um almost in that kind of like Dickensian universal way you know um okay I think we've I was just thinking we're very vague news today aren't we? with our <laughs> Uh, who's this? What's that? What was it? I said, Vosha, yeah, I think that's just, uh, we are recording this in the run up to Christmas. And I think we both got Christmas brains on, to be fair, haven't we? Uh, I'm, I'm, hold, hold that thought. I'm looking at yeah. it now. Okay, good. Uh, Natalie's just put you on hold. <laughs> Your call is important to us. You've been placed in a queue. You are currently position two in the queue. The Fall of the House of Usher is on Netflix. Of course it is. So uh, it's available mm. for many people to watch. And um, yeah, I'm just going to double check who it was starring in it. Uh, yeah, Bruce Greenwood. I was correct. Whoop, whoop. Oh, there you go. See, back in memory. Yeah. So you obviously watched it, right? I've watched the first couple of episodes. Um, okay. Yeah, it's intriguing. It, it's an, like an updated version of it. But uh yeah, like his story, again, you know, there are many scholars out there who have written reams about Edgar Allan Poe, and I feel that I am definitely not doing his work justice, but it is... It's a starting point, though, Nat. Well, exactly, and I think that's the thing that, that's what we do on this exactly. podcast, right? Exactly. It's like, it's okay if you haven't read yeah. hugely or widely, or but what we do hope we do is um, inspire you, you to pick read. up something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or try something, or watch the TV adaptation, that's fine too. Hey, do you know what happened to me a couple of weeks ago, by the way? I don't know if I've told you this. Um, so the aforementioned Michael Connolly mm -hmm. surprised me on the Radio 2 show that I do. has a, a slot called Midnight Mastermind, mm -hmm. and it flips the format of Mastermind. So um, what happens is that a member of the public usually comes on and can ask me three questions on their chosen specialist subject, right? And right. I get one song to revise. See, so yeah, I get the, the subject, we play a tune, I revise during the tune, and then off you go, right? And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I always start by going, good morning, Midnight Mastermind contestant, what's your name? And whereabouts in the world are you? And this draw went, I'm Michael Connolly, and I'm in Florida. And I'm like, what are you doing on Midnight Mastermind? <laughs> anyway, he'd somehow he'd, he'd got through the system and he got on. And he asked me three questions on the Lincoln Lawyer. And yeah, I only got two out of three. Oh, Should I tell you the one I got wrong to see whether you yeah. can get it? Uh, I won't, but yeah. Well, well he's mentioned in the, in the book that we both read. Um, mm -hmm. What was the name of Mickey's legal mentor who taught him how to be a lawyer? Oh, I'm not going to remember, but I do remember reading that in the book. Yeah. That's why I was, and I just couldn't place the name. And then, yeah. and then Michael. So I'll give you the same clue that Mike Connolly gave me. He said, "It's it, it." I'll take the nickname, and he said, "It's legal blank." And I'm like, "Oh, legal he... Spiegel." Close, really close, much closer than I got. Much closer <laughs> than I got. It's Siegel. Siegel. Yeah, legal Siegel. Well done. Legal Siegel. Yeah, I'd have, had, yeah. had a full house. Yeah, I think I would have got at questions? least half. Oh, okay. What's the name of the state prosecutor that is Mickey's ex-wife? No. Yeah, nice so I got lady. <laughs> Kate Aidy, nice lady. Uh, it was um, uh, Maggie McPherson. Maggie ah, McPherson. yes, I did know that. And then the other one he said, um, and this is a Netflix TV one. If you haven't seen The Lincoln Lawyer on there, you might struggle. But he said in the opening credits, um, Mickey's car always has a personalised plate, but we change them. So I'll, I'll accept any plate from the oh. car. So the one no. I got was not guilty. 
Uh, I was going to say that. You just didn't give me enough time to (laughs) say it. Passed his finger first, I'm afraid. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Well, you know, what what can you do? What can you do? But yeah, no, that was great. I'm, again, so thrilled that Michael Connolly took the time and really looking forward to getting stuck into this season. And I know that people might come to this at any time of the year, but I think when the nights draw in, it gets a bit darker. Sometimes that's a bit easier to hunker down with a book. So if you are doing that in the coming winter months here in the UK, we hope we will be good company for that. I'm not going to put this one on you because I couldn't remember it myself, so I've looked it up. Right? So I would like to just add that if you enjoy what we're doing and you'd like to help support us continue to do what we're doing and bring you new authors and new books and best-selling authors and authors that are going to develop into bestsellers, then you can go on Kofi, which is ko-fi.com slash podcast. All one word, plural. So ko-fi.com slash podcast, and you can buy us a euphemistic coffee and you can set your donation and we pour all the money from that straight back into the podcast and into the production tools that we need to make this podcast. And so you're helping to keep us going if you'd like to do that. And we have zero expectation in a global cost of living crisis, but if you can spare a couple of quid, it is greatly appreciated by both of us, isn't it? And we'll hopefully have encouraged you into a book that maybe you didn't think was for you, but but now you think it is. So that's all good. And yeah, thanks for being with us. There's more to come. So make sure you're subscribed.